Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone Season 2, Episode 28, How Kvothe Got His Loot Back, where we will be looking at chapters 59 through 60 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of The Devil You Know. As always, each week we'll be examining a section of The Wise Man's Fear through our chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives. We'll also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian for of the week. After that, we'll expand our understanding of our own world and share an interesting fact. Then we will share a recommended thing of the week, because we like sharing things with y'all. Finally, we'll wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Dot Books. Secondly, spoilers, 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 spoilers. If you haven't read the Kingkiller Chronicle, spoilers. If you're in the middle of the Kingkiller Chronicle, spoilers. Just spoilers. That's it. Spoilers. Also, a word to our community. Be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds that we love exploring. Secondly, if you are still here, thank you. Thirdly, we have a Discord server now, and there are people on it. You should be one of those people. All the cool kids are. There will be a link in the description of this episode. And there's also one in the episode before this. Come join us! And now, it's time for the 45-second recap of the section. Yep, I have the passages recap today. I have determined that I do not have a phone here, but I think my tablet might be able to do the whole timery thingy. Or I could just get one up for you online. I mean, you could, but what's the fun in that? I could discover whether or not I can actually do it on my own could do that i could do okay you already got it up that's what she said i walked right into that one you really did okay you ready yes i'm ready woohoo in three two one go while retrieving the mayor's elixir quoth tells codicus a fib for the arcanist might be trickier and catch on to quoth's jib Quoth inquires after the lackless and sees Codicus infuse a potion with lead, and while the quack rambles about a room trackless, and sends Quoth to the Meyer's bed. After revealing Codicus's treachery, Quoth proposes a test. With some hummingbirds and treachery, he'll prove what he's guessed. Quoth takes Alvaron's purse and goes to Severin Low to retrieve ingredients to reverse the mayor's decline, though slow. After running some errands and retrieving his loot, Quoth takes a horsepower to send, and at the top hears a voice like a flute. Do you think you made it? I think I made it. You really sure you made it? Pretty sure I made it. You're right. 34.47 seconds. Meyer? Eh, I misspoke. Eh. Anyway, no cherries for me. That's the important part. Mm, you sure about that? Yep. That's the important part? That's the important part. Really? Yeah. The entire purpose of this is for me to not get cherries. Yeah. Anyway, let's go ahead and dive in. Okay, no police. We start with chapter 59, Purpose. Kvoth is on his way to Codicus's chambers to both get the potion for the mayor and also learn a bit about the lacklaces. Of course, 
he kind of wants to keep Codicus off balance so he doesn't send any advance warning, knowing that because he's got an urgent errand from the mayor, he can probably waive the formality. Are you sure that he's doing that as a way to catch the guy off balance, or do you think he is just impatient? It can be two things. It can be two things, but I think he's just impatient. I don't think that Quoth thinks that far along the line. I think he is actually trying to figure out ways to keep Codicus from guessing his true purpose because he's been told not to tell anything to this guy. And he also knows that if he gives too much away, there's going to be a problem. I think he is playing a bit of a mind game here. And he also knows that as the foreigner, the out-of-towner, he has a little bit more leeway to violate the taboos. I mean, that's a fair point. I still think his willingness to just barrel forward is more of an impulsive thing rather than a playing the long game. He hasn't been playing tack long enough to figure out the long game. But he fancies himself a schemer. I think he sees that Codicus is an arcanist, so therefore a potential rival. And he wants to disguise his true nature, intent, what have you, as best he can. And it's easier to execute subterfuge if you've got your opponent off balance. I mean, he does do a good job of making Codicus think he's dumb. Or rather, dim. So yeah, he plays this part of a dim but pleasant lordling who's just kind of doing something trivial. He's invented his pretext and seems like an actually pretty good one, all told. I do like the play acting of, oh my god, what is that thing? Because <laughs> he knows it's a huge stuffed crocodile. And Codicus is like, it was left over from the last Arcanist that used this building. It's not a dragon, it's an alligator. There is a difference. Yeah, but there's also a difference between a crocodile and an alligator. I know, that's what I mean. <laughs> The pretext that Quoth invents is specifically trying to write a book of family stories. He wants to get the folklore that surrounds the various great families and compile them into a book. At least that's what he says. This seems to capture Codicus's interest at least a little bit, who says, yeah, I'd read that book. Clearly, court rumor has gotten around, so Codicus has an inkling of who this guy is, but it's smart of Quoth to obfuscate his real purpose. Rumors travel like wildfire in a court situation for a variety of reasons. One, because people are jockeying and maneuvering and trying to increase their status and make use of any information they can. And two, because oftentimes they're bored. The other thing about this is that he makes a point that he's trying to make a book of stories about these families and not just a history because history is dry and potentially boring. He's also making a point that he's not doing just a simple genealogy because anybody can do that. Like that's just organizing things on a chart. If you've ever read Medieval Chronicles, that sounds a lot more interesting than it actually is. <laughs> right. The Chronicle is... This person was the son of this person who is the, you know. You're lucky if you get more than a paragraph on anybody. And even then, it's mostly just a whole lot of stuff where you're like, 
there's a lot more to unpack here, isn't there? He also, though, plays to Codicus's ego. He does. He is like, ooh, what you doing there? That seems really complicated. Will you tell me what you're doing? I've never seen a potion being made. And this is also pretty smart on his part if he's trying to take the measure of what exactly is going on here and what Codicus's role in everything is. In terms of the mayor is clearly, clearly being poisoned. And then the first clue that we have that it's lead poisoning is just the fact that the guy is making this in a lead bowl. Right. You're like, well, that's kind of suspicious, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing could go wrong there. Oh, are all of these classic signs of lead poisoning leading us to believe that it might be lead poisoning? If Codicus is even a third of the Arcanist he claims to be, you would think he would recognize this. And so if he does recognize this and he continues to do it anyway, there must be some ill intent. Right. It must be him on purpose going, oh, yeah, let's make the mayor sick. I don't know what the end game is, but there has to be one. Well, I can see one. Hmm. By making himself indispensable. He can make himself indispensable, but at a certain point, the mayor is going to die from lead poisoning without an heir. And it's what happens after that. If the mayor doesn't have an heir and he dies of what are ostensibly natural causes, then someone is paying Codicus because they have a power play in mind. Someone has something to gain. We know that the king of Vint has been looking to bring the mayor and his lands under his sway for a long time. In the last chapter, we know that one of the reasons that Meluin Lackless is the only person that the mayor will contemplate courting is because she is one of the few marriageable women who is not under the king's sway. So if the king were in a position where he could take Alvaron off the board and there was no heir to complicate matters, he could install someone of his choosing. That would be Codicus's game. And if there's no reason anyone is going to suspect foul play, then he can install whoever he wants. So who gave Codicus the blue flame candles? Hmm. Better quote, just for show. (laughs) I mean, to be fair, Codicus himself could have made them. He could have. So what we know about Ventus is that people believe heavily in symbols and they believe in archetypes and superstitions. And I suspect Codicus finds it in his interest to make his doings appear as arcane and weird as possible, because that means people won't look too closely at what he's actually doing, what his actual motives might be. Also, just the theatrics. I feel like he's a person who, much like Foth, thrives on looking the part. Yeah, he wants to appear to be the mad old wizard who is nonetheless essential to the running of the kingdom. He wants to be seen as Merlin, in other words. Exactly what I was thinking. And these theatrical elements like, yeah, he's got a stuffed crocodile in there. Why? Because it's weird. It lends to the ambiance. He's got all of these crude sigils carved on his bowl, probably because he knows that people expect crude sigils, the things that look weird and arcane, even if purpose of that bowl is far more mundane. He also knows that it's a pretty clever trick because 
let's say someone comes in to test all of his various ingredients, right? They'll test his potions, his tinctures, all of that, his reagents. But this is just a piece of cookware, effectively. And that's really where his poisoning is coming from. It's not something that they would think to test. I'd say Codicus is a pretty clever fellow. He's clever at doing what he needs to do. He's been able to survive for over a dozen years in this courtly environment and been able to use people's superstitions to his advantage. To move on, while he's making this potion, he's also rambling with Kvothe and talking about the Lacklaces. We do get a detailed explanation of everything that's going into the potion and what it turns into, but the thing that's more interesting is when Codicus is asking, do you have any trouble accepting rumor into your research? And Quoth answering, not if it's interesting. And the rumor that gets shared with Quoth is, from what I understand, the Lackless family has an heirloom, an ancient thing that dates back to the beginning of their line. On the oldest parts of the Lackless lands and the oldest part of their ancestral estate, there's a secret door. A door without a handle or hinges. There's no way of opening it. It's locked, but at the same time, lockless. No one knows what's on the other side. Now, how much you want to bet this is just an automatic sliding door that just doesn't have any power? <laughs> All uh, Horizon Zero Dawn? Yep. I mean, that would be cool. The other thing is if it only opens, like if it's a DNA lock. Right. Which would be interesting in this world. I have another question, though. Because the Lackless lands are what? And what are their ancient lands? And are there more than one of these doors? Because there's a door like that in the university. Is this implying that the Lackless lands encompassed Emre in the university at one point? Or is this implying that maybe the two doors connect to one another and it's like the hallway in the back of the Matrix? Or is it a door to the Fae or to yet another realm? Don't know any of those. I don't think that the Lackless Lands compose Imre just because we haven't heard any word of them in Imre proper. Like we'd think that there would be more iconography. We haven't heard anything about four plates or anything like that. So I don't know that it's necessarily like the four plate door. I think they're different. But I also think that this is also a reference to the lackless box. That's what I was also kind of wondering. Is it kind of like when you put something in through Google Translate multiple times and whatever spits out, spits out, and it's no longer box but door? Well, I mean, if you think about it, a room is a box. It's just a very large box. It's the sort of thing where I could see over time through multiple translations as languages drift, that sort of thing changing. Like there could be a time where room and box share the same word. And then as time goes on, people start making a distinction between boxes and rooms. And then when they talk about the lockless box, even though originally it was meant to refer to a room, people are thinking of it like something the size of a chest. So then it comes down to the thing that is in 
Coat Quoth's room that's made out of the Roa wood, is that not the lackless box? It may be a lockless box. You just said lockless and not lackless. I Yes, there's definitely a sense that those two etymologies are connected. But I do believe that it's possible that there are multiple lackless boxes. It may be that that technique for sealing an enclosure is something that's unique to their family. Well, like if you think about it, a puzzle box. Exactly. We have all sorts of things like that. So, I mean, think about it this way. There are Hamilton safes, right? There's not the Hamilton safe. It's just a particular type of safe made by a company called Hamilton. Similarly, you could have a series of vaults or boxes or rooms made by the Lacklisses that uses their particular proprietary methods. And so anything that is made in that fashion is referred to as a lackless box. I mean, it's the same way that Foth's bloodless design is called a bloodless. And there's not just one of them. There's a whole bunch of them that have been manufactured at the fishery. Kleenex. Kleenex, the brand name, has now been attributed to all sorts of facial tissues, whether or not they are actually Kleenex. I'd say the key difference is that there is some bit of unique artifice that goes into a lackless box or a safe or a bloodless that you could say, yeah, this is what makes it this one particular thing versus another, even as there may be very many of these. So some fun thought. So after Codicus finishes rambling here for a bit and gives us some tantalizing hints at what's to come, he gives Quoth the potion to take back to the mayor. So as soon as Quoth gets to the mayor's side, he leans in real close and says, Codicus is trying to poison you. Not to do the well, actually. Well, you just did. But actually, as soon as Quoth gets back to the room, the mayor is like, give me my potion now. Now, now, now. You took your sweet time. Get it to me now. Which is how Quoth is well aware that this is not just lead poisoning. Yeah, we'll get to that. We move into chapter 60, Wisdom's Tool. So here's where Quoth is starting to reveal his bona fides. He says, yep, I'm not just a pretty face. I'm also a member of the Arcanum. I'm an Arcanist in training. It's almost like he wanted that to be a grand reveal. And the reality was that the mayor just stares at him and goes, huh? The mayor also says, all you've really revealed is that you're good at lying. Why should I trust you now? True. <laughs> There's also the point here that Quoth has made a number of major claims. And the grander the claim, the grander the requirement of proof. And the burden of proof is on Quoth here. He's got to back all this up. He's made some pretty serious accusations and also made some pretty grand pronouncements about himself. So rather than trying to go over the he said, she said, because that could easily be manufactured, Quoth does the smart thing and says, okay, tell me if these sound like you. You vomited recently and it was milky and white. Your tongue feels thick and heavy. Your mouth is dry and filled with an odd sharp taste. You've had a craving for sweets, for sugar. You wake in the night and find you cannot move, cannot speak. You're struck with palsy, with colic, and unreasoning panic. And this is far closer 
to proof than anything Quoth has said so far. I mean, if you didn't already catch on to the fact that the bowl that is probably being leached while things are being made was made out of lead, all of this should be like, ah, lead poisoning. Yep. Here's where he can actually say, okay, look, I know what I'm talking about. I have a, quote, guess as to what's happening, but this is a very educated one. I have made some inferences, and let's test these. Is this how you're actually feeling? And lo and behold, the mayor recognizes himself in that. The mayor, though, also is suffering from addiction. And so despite the fact that he's being told that he's being poisoned, there's also this part of him that really wants it. And Quoth muddles this explanation a little bit by saying there's probably some ophalum, which is also a medication. And the mayor latches on to, is it medicine? Then give it to me. Quoth is doing a lot of hedging here. There's a lot of information that he's keeping to himself. He doesn't immediately say, oh, you may know this as dinner resin. Though he gets to that. And when he does, suddenly the mayor changes his tune a bit. And I think part of this is because of the way that we talk about certain substances has societal implications. So for instance, if we talk about morphine, we think of that as a clinical thing. We think of it as medicinal. But if we talk about heroin, even though they are very similar and they're derivatives of one another, we think very differently and we start conjuring images of junkies and people who are poor, people of color, people who are desperate, oftentimes criminal. Opium has a different connotation also. Yep. And it's oftentimes sadly racialized. So we think of opium as something that is associated with people from China. But it's also a pleasure drug that is boutique and higher end. And then we think when we see the word heroin or hear it of someone shooting up and overdosing in a street somewhere. You consider the difference between crack and cocaine. Cocaine is associated with people that have too much money going to lavish parties and snorting a line of coke off of $100 bills. And then crack is associated with essentially burning meth houses. Same deal. It is a street drug where the people that are depicted as using it are criminalized and oftentimes treated as lesser. So the language we use to talk about substances influences the way we think about it, even when we're talking about relatively benign substances. So if you talk about someone using cannabis, they're usually someone who is thought of as probably white, middle class or higher, maybe a little hipsterish or whatever, but generally harmless. Whereas if you talk about marijuana, the person is generally portrayed as being someone of color, someone who is involved in criminal activity. Say weed and you get a completely different idea of who's taking it because then you just get the stoner in the basement. So how we talk about these substances influences the way people think about them. And so it's always really important when you talk about any kind of substance, how are you really describing both the substance and the people who use it? 
because our media has conditioned us to accept certain stereotypes that go along with our language. Even as it's the same substance used across all of these categories, and that's very dangerous. Just something to keep an eye on there. So knowing that he's going to need to put his money where his mouth is here, Kvothe decides to propose a test. He suggests getting some hummingbirds, which he refers to as sipquicks, and the mayor refers to as flits, and using them as essentially test beds. Which makes me so sad, because I also know that Stapes, while trying to be an amazing person, trying to keep his best friend, really, in higher spirits, doesn't alert Quoth or the mayor to just how many of them are poisoned and die. Oops. I don't condone poisoning birds at all. Just no, don't do it. Well, what's also interesting is Quoth is initially saying, okay, don't tell Stapes because I don't trust anyone. And the mayor says, no, I trust Stapes with my life. If you can tell me something, you can tell him something. Even with that, he still doesn't tell Stapes. And this is to protect Stapes. And because Stapes can't lie. Or it's not that he can't, it's just that he's not good at it. Fair enough. He can't lie effectively. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. It just means that the mayor does not want to put Stapes into a position where he might feel obligated to lie. Because if he is, then he knows that Stapes will do a bad job of it, and then there goes the game. It's a tough position for the mayor to be in, and a tough one for Stapes as well. Meanwhile, Quoth offers to help with the withdrawal symptoms that the mayor is going to go through here, because he's already seen firsthand what it can look like from his time with Denna after the Dracus encounter. He knows it's going to be a very difficult period of time. It's going to be painful. It's going to be a period where the mayor is going to really want some of his medicine, even as that is the thing that's killing him. It's also going to be quite gross. Lots of things coming out of either end. Yeah. So Kvothe knows that laudanum should help with the withdrawal. And he also knows that he can do a little bit with some sympathy to try and leech out some of the metal from the mayor's body. He knows that he's probably never going to be able to get all of it because metal poisoning is insidious and very difficult to get out, but he can probably get out a lot of it. He, of course, doesn't tell the mayor just exactly <laughs> this. Again, this is Kvothe playing some cards close to the vest. So in the appearance of being honest, Kvoth also, though, says, okay, so I'm probably your best bet, though I know a whole bunch of people who were like a thousand miles away from here that would be so much better at this than I am. And it appears that Kvoth is being vulnerable and open and deferential, but he's also still hiding some things. Yeah, and I am going to say that in Kvothe's position, that's probably the smart play. So like when you start talking about complicated subjects and you're talking to someone who is not initiated, has not really done the basic foundational work, 
there are certain elements that maybe you don't talk about, right? So like anytime you see someone talking about cybersecurity, for instance, if you're going to talk with a cybersecurity expert in private, they will quickly tell you that, yeah, pretty much the only secure computer is one that cannot be powered on, has been sealed inside a welded shut box, then sunk to the bottom of the ocean, and then buried in concrete. That's the most secure computer. It's one that nobody can actually use because access is inherently insecure. They also know that while these things may be true, they need to inspire confidence. And so if they were to reveal the full extent of what they could do or what could be done, that would only inspire panic. So they will say things like, yes, we can make your computer more safe. And yes, they are making your computer more safe, but they are not making it invulnerable. Now, granted, for most home use, no one really needs to get into your computer and they're not really trying to get into your home computer. This is more corporate espionage. I am simply saying that you should still exercise caution in what your actual online activities comprise. But don't scare people. There's not a whole lot of those places that if you're not stumbling into, I don't know, internet rabbit holes that lead you to places that you don't trust. Yeah, I mean, there's the Mickens threat model. If you're familiar with this, James Mickens is a cybersecurity researcher and theorist. He's done time at Microsoft and Harvard and MIT and all that stuff. And he basically says, okay, if you're worried about criminals getting your data, your best bet is be cautious about clicking on suspicious links and don't give away your password and keep your password relatively secure. Don't write it down on a sticky note. Don't use one of those notebooks that just says passwords. Yeah. If you're generally cautious with your passwords, you rotate them fairly frequently, you'll be fine. So I'm not sure exactly how we got down this rabbit hole, but we should probably steer ourselves back. So when you talk with people in technical fields, the point is there are things that they're not going to tell you because it would probably require a graduate degree to really understand what they're talking about. And they don't want to create more confusion and create a false impression. Well, all this to be said, Quoth thinks I could probably have the mayor send for all the things I need, or I could just go do it myself. And he mentions that there's a lot of these specialized items that he needs to pick up for the mayor to help him through the withdrawal symptoms and says, yeah, but I can't really buy anything right now. And the mayor just kind of looks at him. I need you to give me money. Like, this boy does not ask for money easily, even from people who are richer than the king event. There's also something to be said for the mayor takes the having of money so for granted that unless someone says, oh, hey, I need money, it never even occurs to him that he might need to do this. And he just reaches within a foot of where he is and pulls out a very well-stocked purse. And Quoth is just, what? He also calls back to his escape from Tarbian, where when he was impersonating a lordling, his thing was, a gentleman is never far from his purse. <laughs> and this makes him need to stifle a laugh because 
that wouldn't go over well at all. And trying to explain to the mayor why he finds that funny would not go over well either. There's also a good reason why he can't just have the mayor send for these ingredients. Because anything coming in and out of the palace is going to be monitored. And if you have the general staff asking questions or sending orders around for very specific things, there's a good chance that Codicus will catch wind of it and might get suspicious. And so Stapes comes back with a wardrobe-sized birdcage full of hummingbirds. How does he catch them so quickly? Like, I have never even been able to catch a single hummingbird. Have you tried to catch a hummingbird? When I was a kid, yeah. Okay, I can accept that when you were a child, but I would never want to do that to them. I know. But, I mean, think about it. They move so quickly. Their reflexes are really quick. Like, they can just appear in one space and then they just move instantly. They teleport. Yeah, that's what it feels like. They're really quick. And he's managed to get a dozen of them in a few minutes. Stapes is magic. It's a minor miracle. And so the mayor has to assuage Stapes's instincts, I guess, to just hover and monitor everything and kind of calm him down and go, I still value you. It's okay. Unruffle those feathers. It's okay. You're still my best boy. But I need Kvothe to do some things for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, and one of the things we see here, wisdom's tool, it's caution. And it also means knowing that you want to get the right person to do a given job. And Stapes is ultra competent at very many things. I mean, he caught a dozen <laughs> hummingbirds <laughs> in a couple of minutes. Right. And when it comes to the maintenance and disposition of the house... Yes, Stapes is absolutely the right person. He has a keen mind and he is very organized and skilled at his job. He's basically Alfred. Yes, he is. That said, unlike Alfred, he does not have this surprising list of extracurricular expertises as well. Like in Batman's comics, if Bruce Wayne is to be believed, Alfred is, in addition to being an accomplished butler and head of house staff and manager, he is also an expert mechanic, physicist, medic, and, like, he can basically make anything that Batman needs him to make. <laughs> oh yeah, he's also a former special forces agent, he's also this pretty much do-anything guy. To the point where you're wondering, why isn't Alfred the actual hero here? But point being, Kvothe can do certain things that Stapes cannot. There's a reason why Stapes is not out trying to woo the Lady Lackless. Fair enough. So while Kvothe is dispositioning the cage, he's also poisoning the birds. And then you've got the mayor just waxing poetically about how when he was a kid, he was fascinated by the hummingbirds. Just gonna call them hummingbirds. And that he remembers thinking how wonderful it must be to eat nothing but sugar all day. Which is such a wonderful thing to come out of the mouth of someone who is addicted to dinner resin. Both, <laughs> though, makes an interesting point. These are definitely a pet for nobility. Because who else 
could afford to just give birds sugar all day. That's a very good point. There are certain pets that are priced out of what an ordinary person can afford to do. Exotic pets in particular. And one might actually suggest that exotic pets should not be pets. But when I was living on my own in Medford 12 years ago or so, I worked as a graphic designer for a company that they were doing some print work as a separate company from their dog breeding business. But at a certain point, they realized that their printing business was not bringing in enough money to actually, you know, pay me. So instead, you know what they did? They gave me a dog. Not money. <laughs> Barely enough food for the dog. But they gave me a dog. And then my puppy, who I absolutely loved, I really wanted to take care of him. I barely had enough money for myself, for my rent, for my food. And now I have a dog. And clever little puppy got my purse down off of a counter, which had my cell phone in it, and chewed into the cell phone. And while it didn't hurt him because he didn't actually get it for much more than like a bite, it destroyed the cell phone. And I freaked out because I'm like, I can't. If he needs to go to a vet, I can't. There is no being able to do this. I can't take care of him. And I had to give him back. So seriously, it is a privilege to be able to afford to take care of an animal. And the more esoteric that animal's needs, the more out of reach that becomes for the average person. And keep in mind, like, while it's no big deal for most people to be able to put out sugar water in a hummingbird feeder these days, Foth is talking about a society where things like sugar and salt and spices are not things that you can simply get from your local supermarket. You know, that come in a giant bulk bag. Things like sugar or salt are things that are used to pay people. These are things that are only available to people with access to wealth, effectively. The vast majority of people aren't going to have these as just staples the way we do in our contemporary society. And if they do have any of this stuff, they're not able to just use it for pets. Like if you have sugar, you are using it in baking, in things for your own people, family, or to share and to sell for yourself. To be able to just put it towards something purely leisurely that doesn't really yield any benefit to you or your loved ones is an extreme privilege. One would argue that the sight of the birds does bring some value. It's just when you compare it to, I need to eat, not so much anymore. And especially if you could see them outside. Right. So it's not just, I like to see these birds because they bring me pleasure, so I'm going to go to places where I can see them in the wild. It's, I am going to put them in a cage and have them inside in my room so I can see them whenever I want. So anyway, Foth heads down to Severn Low to do his shopping, but he knows that he's going to have to do some work to throw people off his scent. It's not that people are spying on him, but people talk. He actually expected, though, that there would be a servant or two watching his errands. So again, gossip mongers and boredom. And yeah, people do talk. People go in after a person has left an apothecary to wonder what this person has purchased. And so 
Quoth, cleverly, insinuates that he himself is having problems <clears throat> getting it up, buys a little of everything that is recommended to him, doesn't mention whether or not they actually would work for this particular problem, <laughs> and then makes a scene surrounding this particular uncouth purchase. It's a bit of sleight of hand. It's narrative sleight of hand. He's giving us, the reader, everything we need to know about. But he's also saying to anyone who might be tempted to tell the story later on, if they were to go into that apothecary, what's the apothecary going to remember? Well, he's probably going to remember that that guy came in here and he asked for stuff for impotence. He's not going to remember, oh yeah, also laudanum and all these other things that might be used to treat someone with lead poisoning. Or at least that's not the things that are going to be forefront in his mind. He might remember that he sold these things to the guy, but that's not the first story he tells. It may not even be any story that he tells because the other thing is the thing that's going to grab people's attention. Because, again, the people following Quoth at this point are most likely driven more by curiosity than by a desire to spy. Well, like... When I was working for Washington Mutual, helping people over the phone with their banking needs, there were stories that stuck and there were hundreds of people I will never remember. Oh, yeah. So I remember the person who kept calling and then swearing and calling our customer service agents names that I cannot in good conscience repeat on this podcast. And I remember telling him when he got to me that I would be happy to help him if he didn't call me anything. And then he called me a bench and then I hung up on him and then he went around the calls. I could just see the call going around. Oh, yeah. I've got to share those from my call center days. I think a lot of people do. And Kvothe knows that there's always going to be novelty surrounding him in Severin because he's new because people don't know who he is. So he has to come up with something. If it's too mundane, people are just going to speculate and maybe speculate in ways that he doesn't want. But if he can control the narrative by creating this elaborate, embarrassing story, that would work. Because remember, he doesn't really care what people think about him. Or he doesn't want people to think that he cares about what they think about him. Anyway, to continue on, of course he's going to buy his loot back, and that case. Honestly, if the mayor just casually hands him a purse full of money and says, go get what you need, well, he needs his loot back. I mean, honestly, the time for this conversation probably was when the mayor says, I want you to write me some songs. Right. Pay me. Or, hey, here's the deal. You know that I had some trouble getting here. I had to pawn my loot just to make myself presentable. I kind of need that so that I can, you know, write the songs that you need from me. Honesty, best policy, and all of that stuff. That's not Kvothe. <laughs> but he does get his loot back. With very little fanfare. And he had a day to spare, even. So, yay? That's great. Because usually it comes down to, like, the bomb with the countdown and, you know, three, two, one... And no explosion. Well, it's like in Galaxy Quest how the timer that starts the bomb always stops at one, no matter when you press the button to stop it. 
So, after retrieving his loot and feeling a lot better about himself, he decides it's time to head back to Severin. Where we get a complicated explanation of all the ways that you could get back up to Severin High. You can take the stairs, which is the long way. Which is also dangerous and crumbly. Seems like a really difficult proposition. Or... You could take the freight elevator, which is sympathy-powered and pretty safe. I'd say that's probably your safest option, but it's also not your most expensive option. And because he has somebody else's purse, he goes up the expensive option, which is a horse-drawn set of pulleys pulling an elevator. And the bonus to this particular method of getting up the sheer is that occasionally some drunk noble will fall to his death <laughs> off of it. So yeah, I mean, there's some morbid curiosity there. And in continuing his, I really don't care what people think about me, he decided to look out upon the entire city instead of doing what the nobles do, which is turn around and stare at the cliff face. Why? So if you have a fear of heights... Looking out as the world falls away below you might be really hard and you might end up looking like a fool and you might end up making yourself fall off. Whereas if you're just looking at the cliff face, you're not looking down, you're not looking side to side, you're just staring at the cliff face and you're not making a fool of yourself. And you're probably not vomiting. That'd be my guess. Yeah, but then it becomes a societal thing. Enough people do it and then you look weird for not doing it. Yep. So when the lift gets to the top of the cliff... The lift operator has to interrupt Quoth from his reverie and say, hey, ride's over. Come on, we got to go. Chop, chop. And who should Quoth run smack into but Denna? And we get this really sweet reunion where they come together and they hold each other for a little while, very little while. And Quoth passingly notices that she has a bruise on her cheek, like a really old one, but... The lift operator is just about to like, all right, sayonara. And she's just like, no, wait, I got to get on this. I, I can't miss the train. Pretty much. She's on her way. She's got a schedule to keep. And this lift probably runs on a pretty tight schedule, I'd imagine. But it's also probably a long time between elevator rides. I mean, the Space Needle in Seattle... So it's something like five minutes of elevator ride up and then down. So, yeah, it could take a very long time. And especially if the person that she's running off to meet is also the person who gave her that bruise. She may not feel like she can keep them waiting. Right. On top of that, I didn't make the connection in the last episode about Brayden's cane and Denna's bruises. But there's a lot of speculation that the two are very tied together. We'll stick a pen in that and come back to that when we talk about the cafe. Yes. Before they part, though, Denna tells Kvothe where he can find her. Tinnery Street. How big is the street? How long is it? Where on Tenery Street? Seriously, she doesn't give him enough information. She just gives him enough to tease him into coming to look for her the same way that he always went to go look for her in Imray? Well, it's better than nothing. This is true. The more interesting mystery at this point is why is Denna here? And because of the rushed nature of 
They're meeting and parting. Quoth doesn't get to find out. Oh, well. Oh, shucks. So with that, let's move into our Phronemos of the week. It is your turn. Who did you pick? So, Codicus doesn't know the difference between an alligator and a crocodile, so that's not it. It's never Quoth, even though he was quite clever in his distraction from his true purpose at the apothecary and the fact that he was able to retrieve his loot with relatively no ill consequences. So it's really between Alvaron and Stapes. And really, I'm going to go ahead and choose Stapes. And the reason for that is that he sees his friend, and by all accounts, that's what the mayor is to him. Yes, he's also Stapes' employer, but definitely friend. And he sees the mayor ill and needing assistance. And that he's been trusting other people that Stapes doesn't know the motivations of. He doesn't know Quoth. He doesn't know if Quoth is trustworthy. His friend very clearly has impaired judgment right now because of his illness. Stapes doesn't have a real good reason to not trust Codicus, but I mean, I think that he's doing his best to be a caretaker for the mayor. And while he can't provide medicine and he can't take care of him the way a doctor would take care of him, he can provide comfort. He can provide a second set of eyes and ears to help protect the mayor from overt threats. But he's also there just to make sure that the mayor isn't suffering alone. And I think that that's a really beautiful thing because there is a drastic difference in whether or not you can survive an illness or a mental breakdown or just the wearingly slow passage of time when things aren't going your way. There's only so much you can do while you're alone, but when you have a person there with you, regardless of if they are physically assisting you or doing anything in particular to take the load off other than just being there, honestly, just being there is enough. It can help you fortify. It can help you push through. And I think that it's smart and wonderful that Stapes is there trying to guide his friend and help his friend and comfort his friend. He's not outright telling him not to trust anyone, not to trust Quoth or anything like that, but he's going to keep an eye on the people that are influencing his friend because he knows that he can be trusted. Stapes himself knows that he has no ill intent and the best that he can do is look out for his friend and his employer. Yeah, I think Stapes is very much someone defined by loyalty to principle above all else. And he cares deeply for the mayor. And it has little to do with station and everything to do with knowing that the mayor needs people he can trust. And so he does everything he can to be worthy of that trust. Stapes never says that the mayor should trust him because he's trustworthy. He says, I do what I can because the mayor needs to be able to trust someone. And so I must do everything I can to be worthy of that trust. So yeah, I think Stapes is a very interesting character. And especially as we learn more about him in the coming chapters, we'll get to see more of that come to the fore. It's a good pick. 
Thank you. So now let's move on to our interesting fact of the week. It's your turn. Correct. So I'm going to talk today about a cross-species friendship between porpoises and dolphins. So on Scotland's west coast is the Firth of Clyde, which is a large saltwater inlet that's home to thousands of harbor porpoises and one dolphin named Kylie. Kylie hasn't been observed with other common dolphins in at least 14 years, but she's far from alone because on most clear days in the Clyde, you can see her in the marina hanging out with harbor porpoises, which are cousins that are about two thirds of her size. So yeah, these are not at all your typical bottlenose dolphins. These are smaller porpoises that are similar to her, but they're definitely not the same and they use different communication modes. So in some new research published in Bioacoustics this January, researchers believe that Kylie's tie to the porpoises are closer than scientists had imagined. So while the common dolphin's vocal repertoire should include a diverse range of clicks, whistles, and pulse calls, Kylie doesn't whistle. Instead, she talks more like the harbor porpoises, which are really just using high-pitched bursts of clicks. The study suggests that she may be communicating with the porpoises, or at least attempting to. And it's part of a growing body of work that illuminates a rich world of interactions between different species. So years ago, the Clyde's lone dolphin resident was partial to a buoy at the mouth of a lot called the Kyles of Butte. So that's why they started calling her Kylie. But nobody knows where she came from. Some solitary dolphins end up alone after being separated from their natal groups by storms or human activity, or after being orphaned, and others still may simply be less sociable and prefer their privacy. So to learn more about Kylie's relationship with the porpoises, researchers borrowed a hydrophone and towed it behind a sailing yacht called the Sertia. The researchers captured audio of multiple encounters between Kylie and the porpoises between 2016 and 2018. The researchers state that she definitely identifies as a porpoise. Like she talks like they do, even when there are no porpoises around. The sounds that she uses just in general are porpoise sounds rather than dolphin sounds. So the interesting thing is that while dolphins whistle almost constantly, porpoises never do. So they use these narrow band high frequency clicks, which have eight to 15 amplitude peaks of around 130 kilohertz. So to hear one click, you have to play it at about 100 times slower. These are things that aren't things that you can hear with the human ear without advanced audio equipment to slow it down. But in the recordings, the researchers identified lower frequency clicks that are standard to common dolphins. But even when Kylie appeared to be alone, they found clicks with eight or more amplitude peaks at that 130 kilohertz mark. So that porpoise chat frequency. So Kylie is doing this even when she's by herself. They also found that Kylie never whistles like other dolphins do. The other thing is when Kylie is with the porpoises, her behavior is interesting and their behavior is as well. So the female porpoises will oftentimes bring their calves to hang out with Kylie, who they treat as sort of like a fun aunt. Like she'll take them under her fin, so to speak. Oftentimes the little calves will be swimming just behind her pectoral fin, which is sort of the porpoise and dolphin equivalent of carrying a baby around. So yeah, they take their offspring out to see Aunt Kylie and she babysits them for a bit. And male porpoises also will make overtures to her, which she sometimes even accepts. She seems to flirt with them and have a lot of fun with them. So yeah, it's really interesting that she's effectively inserted herself into their society and talks the way they do. And it's a really interesting portrait of the complexity of 
animal life on our planet. It's oftentimes far more complicated and individualized than we might think. Animal psychology is not defined by just a series of traits that all of them share in common, but things that are shaped through socialization and environmental factors as well. Now, recently, Kylie hasn't been seen since a storm wrecked her favorite buoy in early 2021, but researchers say it isn't unusual for her to go absent for months or years at a time. They're hoping that she'll return at some point. But I just thought that was really interesting to see how, you know, this seems like something out of like a Disney movie or whatever. And yeah, it's actually real. So that was my interesting fact. That's cool. I like your little stories. Awesome. It is your turn for thing of the week. What do you have? So I think I have previously recommended Tom Scott's YouTube channel, but there's also a Tom Scott Plus YouTube channel where he specifically goes to experts to learn more about something he doesn't have any clue on. And I discovered this channel because he did a fake movie fight type scene with Jill Barrop, who is a stage combatant, where he got to be thrown through a window and they showed all of the stage training and all of the choreography and how a novice could be taught all of these moves over the course of a few weeks and how editing and lighting and props go into helping this realism be sold on this rather fake fight. And that got me down that rabbit hole of watching the rest of his videos, including where, as a person around our age, he never learned how to ride a bike. And he's being taught how to ride a bike as an adult. And there is a 20-minute video of him doing this. And he has grace and humility when it comes to all these things that he's learning about. He doesn't come at it with a preconceived notion. And he doesn't come at it saying, of course I should be able to do this thing. Everyone else my age can ride a bike. I can't ride a bike, but I should just be able to do it without any problems. He's not afraid to own up to the fact that this is just not something that he has ever done. And so like the coordination needed to successfully ride a bike or to do parkour stunts or the knowledge of how to sing on key all of these things, he doesn't go into them thinking, of course I can do this. I just need someone to show me once and I'll get it. He's like, all right, I have no idea what I'm doing. Can you please explain it to me? And we're going to try. And then if I don't succeed, I'm going to be okay with that. I'm going to find the humor when I make a very squat coffee mug as my first attempt to do anything on a pottery wheel. Or I'm going to accept that as a nearly 40-year-old man, I am going to fall off a bike a bunch of times before I can actually ride it. And I really appreciate that. I do also appreciate the YouTube channels watching people like Mark Rober where they're like, I have all of these principles of all of these things that I already know how to do and we're just going to make this thing. And I might or might not show you all the failures or I might just gloss over them and then we'll get to the really cool thing at the end. Tom Scott is like, this whole video might be for absolute nothing. 
he went in to talk with James Hoffman about coffee because he doesn't like coffee. And he was expecting that by the end of the entire endeavor, he would still not like coffee. It wasn't a goal to make him like coffee. It was a goal to make him understand why other people like coffee. Then it turns out he found a coffee he liked. I so appreciate that approach. I like this idea that the goal is just the learning. One of the things I've appreciated about Tom Scott in general is he approaches everything with a sense of curiosity, knowing that he may not fully understand everything and that even by the end of it, he may still have a ways to go. He never comes away from any of these things saying, and now I'm an expert. It's now I know more than I started. Yes. (laughs) And it's a very quintessentially humble thing. And he's definitely a very smart person. He's a talented software engineer. So he's done a lot of computer work. He understands programming really well. He understands logic really well and engineering principles really well. But he never lets that understanding of one thing make him think that he's an expert in anything else. All it does is it gives him reason to be curious about these other things and see what he can learn from them. And I think there's something really powerful in that. So I think having that sense of humility is unique and important. So yeah, good pick. Thank you. So now with that, let's go ahead and find our seven words. You have the words from the book today. So what'd you pick? I have a couple that I've highlighted, but I haven't really picked anything and I want your help. Okay. So the ones I'm debating between are, I was rather proud of this lie. I'd put myself all in a muddle. A little caution would serve us well. And they say every man has a price. So I would say a little caution would serve us well is a good one. And it's a good reminder that sometimes it's worth taking the extra time to understand the implications of your actions and make a decision accordingly, as opposed to just blindly rushing into something. And as a little bonus, a door without a handle or hinges is also seven words and was also used as a sentence. But I do agree with you. I think that a little caution would serve us well is an appropriate seven words for this section. And I believe that you have seven words from life. I do. All right, so this is something that you said this week. Wake me up if anything exciting happens. (laughs) Little context, we are waiting for hopefully positive news and hopefully by the time that this comes out, we will have had positive news regarding a potential job that Will has applied for and interviewed for a few times now. We're just kind of waiting for the decision from the hiring manager. And when I sent you that, I was really hoping that we'd get news last week. But these things take time. Yep. So with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we cover chapters 61 through 62 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of Jumping at Shadows. We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. 
audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get early access to the show, as well as other bonus items, which are all laid out there. Also, come join us on our Discord! Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Any hoozle. With that, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. I thought it was adorable showing your mom and your sister the book that we're reading and explaining how far we are into it. Because you're like, yeah, we're about halfway. And then I went and figured it out. We're about 100 pages from the halfway mark. We'll get through that in no time. Two months. Yeah. At least. Yeah. Maybe longer.